Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. Nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray now that you would help us fill me with your spirit. Pray, Lord God, that you would guard what I say today. May I say those things you once said and not say anything I ought not to. 
And I pray, Lord, all of us would be filled with your spirit to hear and to listen. Father, let nothing else enter our minds right now. Help us to put aside all distraction. Father, help us to hear you. I pray that, uh, Father, whatever you have to say to each of us, our hearts and our minds and our ears would be open. We would listen and we would respond. And Father, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If we but knew that through the closing door, someone we love would enter nevermore, would we not hasten with our richest store? If we but knew. If we but knew that from the marketplace soon we should miss some kind, familiar face, would our cold greetings not be touched with grace? If we but knew. If we but knew some heart beside our own had walked in dark Gethsemane alone, oh, with what largesse would our love be shown? If we but knew. We learned in the previous chapter, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, that as a believer in Jesus Christ living in the dispensation of grace, I have liberty in Christ, I have rights. We talked about that last week. And Paul deals extensively with that topic all throughout here. He deals extensively with that topic in the book of Galatians as well. However, we learned that Paul's point in chapter 8 was, my rights are secondary to my brothers and sisters' rights. My rights are secondary to their needs. And therefore, my personal liberty has to take a back seat to their evangelism, to their discipleship, to their growth. But he's not done in chapter 8. He's continuing on now in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and all the way through to the very first verse of chapter 11, talking about that very same thing. So much so that when we get to chapter 11 and verse number 1, we see him saying there, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Here in chapter 9, he's holding himself up as an example of what he's taught in chapter 8, that our personal liberty ought to take a backseat to the needs of others. And then he takes that thought all the way through to chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at how Paul holds himself up as an example. What does he tell us about himself here in chapter 9 that is what we're supposed to be imitating? And I think we'll see three things that he mentions here. The first thing I think we'll notice is in verses 1 through 8, he says, I have rights too. And then he goes on after that and he says, but I don't exercise those rights. That's point number two. And point number three, he says, here's why. So that's the simple outline this morning. I have rights. I don't exercise those rights. And here's why. Let's notice them very briefly this morning. First of all, verses one through eight, I have rights too. As a fellow believer, he had the same claim on Christian liberty as did anybody else, as you or I or anybody else would have had, correct? But he goes a little bit further here in these verses and says that his liberty goes farther because as an apostle, there were some rights that were specific to that role. As a leader in the church, there were some rights specific to that role that he said he had in addition. For example, if you look at verse number four, he says, do we have no right to eat and drink? Now, that's interesting. He said, I have the right to eat and drink. Now, it's odd that anybody would have ever questioned that. Would you have ever thought that Paul didn't have the right to eat and drink, but he held that up as one of the rights that perhaps was in question? Who would possibly deny that as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not have such a right? But apparently it was questioned. 
And when we think about today, I think we can see that it's questioned today in some circles, is it not? Have you ever heard the illustration of the church that called a pastor and in their praying about the new pastor, they said, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. Did you ever hear about that? That church. Some say that as a joke, but unfortunately, some places it's not a joke. Some places it seems like people think it's perfectly all right to starve those who are serving in the church. For some reason, people devalue the work of such people. Remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 about himself? Flip back over there. It's just a page back. Look at verse number 9. Here's how he described his situation here. He said, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. He certainly, apparently, had those who were questioning whether he had the right to eat or drink. And so he said, first of all, we have the right to have the needs of our life supplied, just as you do. He said, I have rights. He said in verse number five, verse number five, do we, not, do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? He said, I have the right to have a wife. I have the right to marriage. I don't think there's a whole lot of need to spend time here because it's pretty clear what he's saying there i have the right to be married there was no requirement then and there is none now that those in ministry give up their rights to marriage paul was unmarried but the other disciples the other apostles were not it's interesting that peter cephas is another name for peter peter is especially singled out here as having been married if you've been trained to believe as some in the catholic church teach that peter was the first pope and that celibacy is a requirement of those in ministry that might surprise you a little bit but there it is peter was married there's another place where we learn that peter had a mother-in-law and i heard one preacher say one time that it would be pretty sad to have a mother-in-law if you weren't married if you didn't have a wife (laughs) he was married And, and paul said i have the right I have the right to marriage. He said in verses 6 through 14, I have the right to payment, wages. I think this might be redundant with what he said there in, in the right to food or to eat and drink. Uh, possibly. There may be a, a slightly different meaning there. But he, what he's saying here in verses 6 through 14 is he has the right to be paid for his labor. He gives a lot of space to this in verses 6 through 14. He's saying ministers should be paid a living wage. He calls upon all kinds of reasoning. He calls upon common sense in verse number 7. He calls upon the Old Testament law of Moses in verse number 8. He calls upon the example of the Old Testament priesthood in verse number 13. And he even calls upon the words of Jesus Christ himself in verse number 14. Ministers should be paid a living wage, he says. I have a right to that, he says. They can reasonably expect that. I should reasonably be able to expect that. Expect that. Simple. Now, I confess I spent a lot of time thinking about this passage. Uh, I receive a a small housing allowance from this church, but I receive no salary. Pastor Phil receives the same. And and, and there's some reasons why, when when I came to this church, why we chose that, why I continued to work a secular job to support my family and those things. One was there was less than ten people here, and uh, the salary would have been more than the church could have afforded at the time. Another reason was because there were some things that we knew needed to be done here, some changes that needed to be made. 
And quite frankly, it would have been easier uh, to do. We knew it would be easier to do if we didn't have to worry about whether our paycheck was going to be yanked out from under us when we did it. But nonetheless, I, I wonder about it sometimes. You know, in another place, the Apostle Paul lamented. Matter of fact, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He talked later on to the same group of people in another letter. And he said, what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. And so here he says, you know, I have a right to a paycheck, although I don't take one. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says, you know, I, I was wrong to have not taught you that. And so sometimes I wrestle with that issue. Not that I want a paycheck here at all. I, I'm fine with my job. But what happens sometime down the road when I'm not here? And I won't be here forever. There will be another pastor who will come in. What happens someday when this church calls somebody full time perhaps? Will you take care of them? Or will I have done wrong and taught you to starve them to death? I hope that's not the case. And I hope, church, that when the time comes that you will take care of him and his. Because Paul, sir, he makes a very good case. Read it on your own. He makes a very good case that uh, the church is responsible and the minister has a right to the wages that he earns. So he says here, and these are all just examples, and there might be a few others in there, but those are the three that jump out at me. He says here, I have rights. That's point number one. Point number two, he says, but I don't demand them. I don't demand them. And this is in verses 12 through 18. He says two times, very, very clearly. One time in verse number 12, he says, nevertheless, we have not used this right. He says very clearly in verse number 15, but I have used none of these things. And so he's listing these various rights, not because he wants them. He's listing them as examples of what he could reasonably expect and then saying, but I don't do that. I don't expect that. I don't ask that. I don't demand those rights. And he's also very, very clear. I think it's almost funny how he jumps in here very, very clearly. He wants to make sure that they understand. I'm not saying this now so that you will jump up now and try to rectify this. I'm not saying that you don't pay me a salary so that I will get one in the future. That's not what he's saying at all. He's just pointing out to them that he does not demand these rights and using himself as an example. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 18 says that he actually took joy in serving without pay. He took reward in the fact that he could present the greatest gift that has ever been given, free of charge. Verse 18 says his reward was the joy of preaching the gospel without reward. And so Paul had rights, and he said, but I don't exercise those rights. I don't demand those rights. Point number three, he says, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Look at verse number 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things. Why? Lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Look at verse number 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake. I think we can summarize his thoughts here when he says, let me tell you why. He says, I do it for the gospel's sake. I do it so that others will hear, so that nothing will hinder their salvation, so that I might win as many to Christ as is possible. Isn't that what he's saying? Why do I have rights, but I give them up and I don't demand them? He says, because I want to see as many folks come to Christ as I could possibly see. During VBS this week, I had very little to do. 
I was on the security team, which means that I basically stood about and looked. Important. Is that what I looked? Okay. <laughs> important. I don't think I looked too important. No, the security team was actually an important role, and, and there were several of the men in our church who, who jumped in and, and helped with that role, making sure that kids got across the street safely and cars didn't run them over and no nasty-looking adults came and snatched children out from our midst, none of that kind of stuff. It was, it was important. Um, but the fact is, there was a lot of downtime in that role, and there was a few times where I just would sneak away and study this message a little bit or read or do something. And one time I came up and I sat back there in the back row, and uh, Jeff was up here leading singing, and I was, just, I was just reading this passage of Scripture, and I just read 1 Corinthians 9 through a few times, and, and it just struck me, and I turned around, and I looked at Ray, and I said, you know what, I cannot wait to get to heaven someday and meet the Apostle Paul. Because when you read this chapter and you read what he says here about this, it gives us such a glimpse into his personality, into his makeup, into what made him a warrior for God. And believe me, he was a warrior for God. Now, he didn't say here he chose to voluntarily set aside his liberty in Christ because it was convenient or because it provided him some other personal advantage. There was nothing here where he said, what's in this for me? That just doesn't exist. That attitude wasn't in him. No, he plainly said that what he did, he did for the sake of the gospel. He did for the sake of others being saved. Look at it. Verse number 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things. Why? Lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Verse number 22. I have become all things to all men. Why? That I might by all means save some. Verse number 23. Now this I do. Why? For the gospel's sake. I love the way the New Living Translation renders verse 12. It says we would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. That was his motivation. That was why he was willing to sacrifice his own personal liberty. Nothing must hinder the gospel. Nothing must stand in the way of even one person hearing the good news about Christ. He would give up anything. He would pay any price to ensure that happened. And if that meant a personal cost to him, he would pay it. If that meant surrendering comforts and liberties, he was willing to do it. I've said it in the past, and I think Paul says it here again for us throughout this passage. The goal is the soul. The goal is the soul. He was a soul winner. And he was never satisfied that he had won enough. He was never satisfied. He knew that as long as he was still on this earth, he knew that as long as Christ had not called him home, there were more who needed to hear, more who needed the good news, more who needed to be saved, more to win. Some in the hyper-Calvinist camp like to disparage that thought. They like to disparage the idea of winning souls. You know what I think? I think Paul would spit in their eye. Because even though the Apostle Paul spoke more about sovereignty of God and election than anybody else in the Bible, he also was as clear as it is possible for anybody to be about the matter of winning people to Christ. He certainly saw both sides of that equation. He knew God played a part in salvation. He also knew man must believe. Man must hear it if they would be saved. And that means somebody must share it. How shall they hear without a preacher? The Bible says man must be changed by the gospel if they would be saved. They must understand the crushing, crushing need of salvation that is upon them. And they must understand that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for that. Man must repent of their sin. Man must believe the gospel. Man must call upon the name of the Lord asking for the gift of salvation that Jesus died to give. I don't remember doing that, you might be saying. Well, maybe you ought to. Because it is the only way. It is the only 
way. You need to do it today. You see, Paul understands those things. He recognized that nothing was more important. Nothing was more important. Not his personal liberty. Nothing was more important than winning the lost. And so, when he was around Jewish folks, he would recognize and respect their sensibilities so as not to offend them. When we were in Israel, we would come to certain holy sites. Certain sites that were specifically holy to the Jewish folks. There were some that were specifically holy to the Muslim folks as well, but the Jewish folks is what I'm thinking about right now. You would walk up to one of these sites and there would be a sign there. It would say, ladies, please dress modestly. And if you were not dressed modestly, they would have a wrap to put around you or a shawl to go across your shoulders or something like that because that was their sensibilities. Men, please have your head covered. You know, the Jews, Jewish men don't go in these places without their head covered. They wear the little yarmulke. And if you didn't have a hat on, they would conveniently have a little box of yarmulkes there for you, and they would expect you to take one and place it on your head. Some folks might have said, you know what? I don't need to do that. I have Christian liberty, and I don't need to go in there and do that. And they just go barging right through there. And sometimes you'd see that. You know what the Apostle Paul would have said? He would have said, you know what? I want to win them. Hand me the yarmulke. I'll put it on. It's not a big deal. He said, I'll do whatever I need to do. When I'm around the Jews in order to win them. He said in order to win those who were outside the Jewish law, he would live in such a way as to not offend them that they might not be turned away from the gospel. And he said to those who were weak, and I think that's a direct reference, by the way, right back to chapter 8. The whole issue we're talking about here, the matter of Christian liberty versus the weaker brethren, I think to those who are weak, he said, directly referencing that, he said, I'll defer to their sensibilities. I want to win them. I want to win them. I don't know how we can make it any clearer than Paul did here. I don't know how I could add to anything he says. It needs to affect our heart. Nothing is more important than the salvation of the lost, the souls of the lost. Nothing, nothing is more important than the souls of the lost. We're here for that reason and no other. Paul's example, which he longed for the Corinthians to imitate was what he said in verse number 22. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I remember the very first message I ever preached. The very first message I ever preached was from verses 24 through 27 of this particular passage. I honestly don't remember the message. I don't remember a word I said. I just remember the terror I felt in preparing it. I remember that I preached it from this very pulpit in this very place. And I remember that Pastor Paul Phillips was the pastor here at the time, and I remember that I was terrified to do it. It was some kind of a youth thing. It was when I was a teen, and uh, somehow it had fallen upon me that I had to bring the message. And I remember him saying, just come over to the house and I'll help you with it. I remember riding my bicycle all the way up to New Milford Road and down Talmadge Road to where he lived in, in Edinburgh there, and sitting in his garage and working on a message from this particular passage. I'm sure it was brilliant. I'm sure it was. But you know, as I read these verses here today, and now understanding the context a little bit more of what Paul is saying here. You know what he's saying here? He's saying to the Corinthians, don't be sidetracked in your race by trivialities. Isn't that what he's saying? Listen, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable. Therefore, 
I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He's saying, don't get sidetracked in this race by trivialities. Don't let silly, nonsensical, personal liberty issues slow your pace. Keep your eyes focused on and your feet running toward the finish line ahead of you. Don't don't stop punching where you're supposed to be punching. Well, don't forget who your opponent is and start punching at the air. He says, just as athletes voluntarily lay aside anything and everything that might slow them or hinder them or hamper their performance, so too should the Christian who wants to win. And isn't it interesting that he says we should want to win? He said we should run to win. You know, I think we need to get serious as believers about what we're doing here on this earth. What in the world are we doing here on this earth? There's only one reason we're here. We're not here to exercise our own personal liberties. We are here to reach everybody we can with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know, I know there are those who think we're here to worship God. And I know there are those who think we're here to enjoy God and delight in God and grow in grace and all those good things. I've read all those same books you have, and those are all good and wonderful things. But we can do those a lot better in heaven than we can do them here. There's only one reason we're on this earth, and that is to win people to Christ. That is it. There is no other reason. And the basic truth Paul was trying to illustrate with his own example here, the very thing he was trying to say, imitate me, was that he was willing to lay aside everything. In order to win people to Christ. Everything. Because nothing is more important. Than the souls of the lost. I want to close with a story. How many of you ever heard of a fellow by the name of John Harper? Anybody ever heard of John Harper? Have you heard of John Harper? Let me read you the story of John Harper. It was April 15th, 1912. When the HMS Titanic sank beneath the icy waters of the North Atlantic, taking with it 1,517 lives. The largest and most luxurious ship at the time was gone, reminding the world of our frailty as human beings. But there is more to the sinking of the Titanic than a historical tragedy. There is a story of courageous heroism and unshakable faith. Is this a John Harper you've heard of? John Harper was aboard the Titanic when he when she set sail from Southampton, England, on her maiden voyage. An evangelist, originally from Glasgow, Scotland, he was well known throughout the United Kingdom as a charismatic, passionate speaker who led many to Christ through his gift of preaching. In 1912, Reverend Harper received an invitation to speak at the Moody Church in Chicago, USA. On April 11, 1912, John Harper boarded the Titanic. Some of the wealthiest people in the world were aboard, and while many passengers spoke of business deals, acquisitions and material desires, John Harper was diligently sharing the love of Christ with others. In the days leading up to the tragedy, survivors reported seeing Harper living like a man of faith, speaking kind words and sharing the love of Christ. On the evening of April 14th, as passengers danced in the ballroom and tried their luck at the card tables, John Harper put his daughter to bed and read his devotions as he did every night. At 11.40 p.m., the Titanic struck an iceberg. The unsinkable ship was doomed. Either in disbelief or unaware at the time, passengers continued about their pleasures. It wasn't until the ship's crew sent up a series of distress flares that passengers realized the seriousness of their situation. Then chaos ensued. 
It all happened so fast. But John Harper's response left a historic example of courage and faith. He awakened his daughter, picked her up and wrapped her in a blanket before carrying her up to the deck. There he kissed her goodbye and handed her to a crewman who put her into lifeboat 11. Harper knew he would never see his daughter again. His daughter would be left an orphan at six years of age. Harper then gave his life jacket to a fellow passenger, ending any chance of his own survival. Another, I read several accounts of this particular thing, and another one of the accounts said that he walked up to the young man and said, are you a Christian, are you saved? And the man said, no. And he gave him his life jacket and said, you need this more than I do. From a survivor, we learned that he was calling out as he walked around the decks, women and children and unsaved people into the lifeboats. He understood there was a more important thing than surviving that terrible disaster. He understood there were those who were unprepared to face eternity. And so as the sounds of terror and mayhem continued, Harper focused on his God-given purpose. Survivors reported seeing him on the upper deck on his knees, surrounded by terrified passengers, praying for their salvation. At 2.40 a.m., the Titanic disappeared beneath the North Atlantic, leaving a mushroom-like cloud of smoke and steam above her grave, and tragically, over 1,000 people, including Harper, including Harper, fighting for their lives in the icy water. He managed to find a piece of floating wreckage to hold on to. Quickly, he swam to every person he could find, urging those about him to put their faith in Christ. While death forced others to face the folly of their life's pursuits, John Harper's goal of winning people to Jesus Christ became more vital. In the water, he was moving around as best he could, speaking to as many people as possible. His question was, are you saved? And if they weren't saved, and if they didn't understand that terminology as rapidly as he could, he explained the Christian gospel. But soon he succumbed to the ICC. But even in his last moment, this tireless man of undying faith continued his life pursuit of winning lost souls. It was reported that the last words he spoke as he disappeared beneath the waves were... The last words he spoke as he disappeared beneath the waves were believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. One person remembered, quote, I am a survivor of the Titanic. I was one of only six people out of 1,517 to be pulled from the icy waters on that dreadful night. Like hundreds around me, I found myself struggling in the cold, dark waters of the North Atlantic. The wail of the perishing was ringing in my ears when there floated by me a man who called to me, is your soul saved? And I heard him call out to others as he and everyone around sank beneath the waters. There alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I cried to Christ to save me. I am John, John Harper's last convert, end quote. You know, people are sinking beneath the waves all around us. What matters our personal liberties in light of that reality? That's what Paul was trying to remind the Corinthians of. That's why he gave his personal example. That's why he said, I have rights. I don't demand them. Why? Because people are lost and I will do everything in my power. Imitate me, he said. And oh, my brothers, my sisters, let us do that. Let us imitate him. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment. I just want to, I want to make two comments, two questions today. First of all, I'd like to talk to those of you here 
who might not be believers. Some of you here today may not have the assurance that if you were to slip beneath the waves of life today, you'd be in heaven. Some have never understood the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps today you're sitting there and you're thinking, I've heard about Jesus from a historical perspective. I understand about Jesus as a person who lived in history, but you've never considered his claims on you. You. Your life. You've never thought that the cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which you could hide. You've never thought that there's room at the cross for you. But it was for you he died. It was for you he was crucified. He paid for your sin. And he paid for it all. And he rose on the third day to prove it was finished and to offer you heaven. But listen, you have to hear it. You have to believe it. And you have to receive it. You have to call and ask for it. Have you done that? Have you done that today? You know, John Harper didn't plan on going into the sea on that particular night. He, he planned on going to bed, getting up the next morning. But God had other plans. Just this past week, some folks went to a movie theater. They thought they were just going to go see Batman. They had no belief that they were going to walk in that door. And when they walked out, they'd be entering the head of hell. But several of them did. Listen, have you found Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Do you know today that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? If the answer to that is no, if the answer to that is I don't know, would you do this when we sing in just a moment? Just step out where you are. Come to the front. There is not a person here who will try to embarrass you or hurt you in any way. This group of people loves you. So let's just let us show you from the Bible how you can know. When we sing in just a moment. And then let me say something to the Christians who are here. To those who are believers. You know, I say this in love. I say this as your pastor. I say this as your friend. Some of us need to quit wasting our life on nonsense. Some of us need to quit wasting our life on triviality. We need to get in the race. The goal is the soul. People are perishing. The world is dying. Everybody around us needs the gospel. And I think this morning some need to just confess either here at the front or right where you sit, you just need to do business with God and talk about the fact that your personal rights, your personal liberties have been way too important in your life. And you need to set them aside. I want to commit to that today. Some of us need to commit to that today. Some of us need to say, I will imitate Paul in these things.